0: You are listening to Under This Light, a revelation of Shakespeare himself. I am your host, Lamar Legend. This is brought to you by Seattle Shakespeare Company. And today we have Yusuf Algindi. He was born in Egypt and raised in London and now based in Seattle. Yusuf's work frequently examines the collision of ethnicities, cultures, and politics that immigrants face, particularly Arab and Muslim Americans. His plays include People of the Book at ACT in Seattle, The Talented Ones at Artists Repertory Theater in Portland, and Threesome at Portland Center Stage, he is the recipient of the Steinberg ATCA New Play Award, American Blues Theater's Blue Ink Playwriting Award, L.A. Weekly's Excellence in Playwriting Award, a Seattle Gregory Award, the Middle East America Distinguished Playwriting Award, and Bloomsbury Methuen Drama recently published the selected works of Yusuf Algindi. Yusuf, it's so good to have you here with us today. Thank
1: you for inviting me Lamar it's that's uh, very kind of you thank you
0: <laughs> absolutely will you walk us through uh, your relationship with theater how did it begin well it began way back in um,
1: I think I was 13 in England in boarding school and um, I was a bit of a clown in class and uh, somebody dropped out of a play we were doing school plays and somebody dropped out of a play and said hey would you uh, step in uh, and play this role um we're in a bit of a, a bit of a bind and um we know how you love to just hammer it up in class i said sure so um <laughs> i jumped in and it was my first play and i think my first performance um was a three-character play and one of the actors, this young actor, I, mean, well, I mean I was like 13, 14, we were all that age, uh, he just blurted out in the middle of the play, he just said I'm fed up with this play and I, I, I'm just <laughs> fed up with this play and, I, and, I, and we all just looked at him going, what? <laughs> you know, and he, just, he, he was just declaring his opinion about how he was feeling at that moment which I suppose is a kind of honest wow. acting. But I just... And then the <laughs> my, my co-actor, who was a little more experienced had the presence of mind, to just kind of pick it up. We just kind of looked at him stunned, and then he just kind of picked it up, uh, and we carried on. And it was such a weird experience, but that was my first ever experience oh, wow. in... Uh, and, and then I just, uh, and I kind of fell in love with acting, and I, I, I fell in love with the whole process of learning lines and getting involved in uh, this kind of storytelling. And, um, uh, yeah, so I, I, I was passionate about becoming an actor, much to the horror of my father. Uh, even though my <laughs> on my mother's side, we come from a family. Of my grandmother was an actress, became a publisher. My grandfather was a theater director, so it wasn't completely a foreign idea in the family. But you know, be, because I mean, they were successful, but they also knew what a tough road it it was. And um, yeah, it's just it's it's. So that was my first. You know, uh, growing up and just growing up in England, you know, I just, uh, I won't date myself, but, um, you know, (laughs) I just, I I only appreciate now what I had access to as a teenager growing up in England and just, you know, we lived in London and just going to see a a play for me was as... um, start like going to see a movie it was just like should I go see a movie should I go see a play and, you know going we had the national theater so I just go see well what's this new play by Harold Pinter you know No Man's Land let me check that out and because I was a teenager I'd get like the tickets were like five pounds or something like that and I get like second row seats and see John Gielgud and Ralph Richardson in this kind of Weird play called uh, No Man's Land by Harold Pinter was like, or I'd go see the new play by Tom Stoppard, or I'd you know go see wow. uh, all these you know Paul Schofield, Ben Kingsley, and John Gilgood and mm. Volpone You know, I remember seeing Volpone at the National Theatre, and you know being and and, and having this the spittle of uh, John Gilgood sort of. Um, you know, raining down on me as I was sat in the second row, and <laughs> and just going, you know, raining on me. So this was all just this was my sort of, without realising, I was just absorbing a whole lot as a as a as a kid, and that was my a uh, real first introduction to theatre. Goes to a whole lot without my realizing you know what an education it was so I so basically I wanted to be an actor and um uh and without going into too much detail I applied I did my undergraduate degree I went back to Cairo to do my undergraduate degree I did lots of acting in uh, in Cairo and then I applied to six acting schools uh, because my my father felt well why you know the future lies in the states at the time uh and um and he said well you, let's let's focus on that so i applied to six acting schools uh and one playwriting school and the
0: schools were were in the us
1: in the us yeah i didn't want to go back to england you know I, at a certain point i i just felt I remember going to my father saying, "I don't want to be English. I <laughs> don't want to be." It was. It's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a whole other story. So, but I, he said, "Well, fine, come back to Cairo."
0: Well, I'm uh, sure, I'm I'm curious. Uh, we can we can meander a little bit. Um, I actually want to go uh, delve a little deeper, um, more deeply into just a little bit about your father and if you don't mind sure um if that's not too personal but the dichotomy in terms of the support you were receiving from you said your mother and your mother's side of the family because it was they were just well versed in it um in the arts and and your father i assume correct me if i'm wrong had a different path for you no
1: yes he wanted me to be a lawyer and and Ah. um he and in fact we we what at one point I was so fed up with England and you know even though I was a theatre kid and I had all had this access to all this wonderful theatre I just also England in the in the 60s and 70s was not very uh, hospitable to 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 foreigners and 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 just to it was not a great environment and I just I'd had I'd had enough and I wanted out and um, and he said well let's just switch to the American system then and I had um, visited Paris to visit a friend, um, and I said, "Gosh, you know they have an American college in Paris. Wouldn't it be lovely if I went to to Paris?" And I and, and I said, "I said uh, uh, if you send me to this American college in Paris, I promise to become a lawyer." And I meant it at the time. <laughs> at the time, I meant it, and he said, "All right," and that was like music to his ears. So I I, mm. I went to I switched to the American college in paris and um it was it was i just loved the american system all all of a sudden i had access to all these different subjects i spent seven years in boarding school and suddenly Mm -hmm. i was in paris as a 17 year old kid um and there were you know bars every the campus was sort of like all over the place, no bars in between. I, and um, even though they let you drink, you know, in boarding school, once you turn 16, they actually had an, a bar for the older boys. So it wasn't, you know, drinking wasn't a big deal. It was only beer that was allowed. Uh, but in Paris, suddenly I was, you know, exposed to so much. And, um, and my first, I, 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 the first guy I met was this American from Denver. And, and his brother was a, a, a drug dealer and he he, was just, he, would, he would send my friend, he would send his brother drugs through the mail. I, I, I remember I took a class, I know, I'm, I know I'm rambling, but I took this class in, um, it was philosophy, the philosophy of the Old Testament by... Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was it was it was run by jesuit it was the class was run by jesuit priest we had it at his home you know we during break between it was like three hours we'd have a break and he'd have like wine and cheese for the students you know and during the break which was great and i remember one day um he said do uh, the class had ended and a few of us had remained behind he said he said so does anybody smoke here and i thought cigarettes and i was smoking there Was a smoke <laughs> at the time and then, and I said, yeah, I, I spoke. And he proceeded to bring out this bomb, this this um, marijuana wow. bomb. And he just kind of passed it around. And I was thinking, I love the American educational system. This is great.
0: Would you say, because you were exposing yourself and were exposed to... The, you know the vast majority of of professions within the performing arts I mean you were acting I mean and you were also writing poetry were you at any point thinking like I want to land on one or the other no you see the thing is this I up in this year I I was passionate about acting and I was just
1: devastated in fact we were talking before the recording about uh, um um Psychics and readings and all that. And actually, what was interesting in Cairo, I had two readings. One reading was a tarot card reading, and I told them my interests were acting and um, and I said writing. And the tarot card reading said writing ninety percent, acting uh, like just ten percent of you. And I said no, no, I think you've got that mixed up. I'm going to be an actor, and Uh, So actually, i probably 10% writing and 90% acting. And the the cards said the exact opposite. And then I had a second reading, uh, a numerology reading, and they said, nothing's going to happen for you, Yusuf, until much later in life. Now, I I, I thought much later meant maybe five, ten years. I didn't realize (laughs) maybe like 20 (laughs) years later (laughs) my career would start. But... That was kind of interesting, so no, so when I went to Carnegie Mellon, I still secretly harbored the desire to become an actor, and I was actually panicked about mm. now being in conservatory uh learning this craft that I was interested in, but it wasn 't my passion, and i was I worried mm-hmm. that I was going to be surrounded by people for whom this was a passion, and how could I compete with that well, and you know i i i i 'm always very i 'm very studious, and I apply myself. To whatever whatever I, I have to um, to stay afloat and get ahead and um, I did decently and more importantly I learned the craft of playwriting which was very new for me um, I had, all my studies in theatre had been um, related to acting and now I was being taught specifically the craft of playwriting uh, and it was a very a dry approach you know it wasn't so much what is your voice it's these are the craft elements that make up uh the medium uh of uh plays uh and you have to learn you know novel plays are different from novels are different from short stories from poems etc and 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 you have to you have to familiarize yourself with these
0: techniques did that deepen your relationship to the art form or yes distract I, you or?
1: yes what happened was my very first exercise I was given uh, I, I you know I I'd just come out, out from my English and comparative my English comparative lit undergraduate degree and so I was full with all these great writers and these artworks and I was very much into the whole Bloomsbury group Virginia Woolf and Ian Forrester and Oscar and uh, that hold, uh, uh, Vanessa Bell. And so, my first, very first exercise was you know, I was trying to be, you know, profound and say something. And my playwriting teacher sat me down and said, Look, it's this is kind of boring. Uh, you know, there may be something interesting in there, but I'm not really interested in, you know, your your take on this issue or that issue what i need from you is i need to see you incorporate the techniques we talk about in class into the scene work so if we're talking about for instance exposition and how to get exposition uh successfully get information out of the audience in a way that doesn't bore them or you know make the action drag um uh that's that's your task. Write a five-page scene in which we get exposition in such a way that it moves the action forward, is relevant to the action, uh, and doesn't stop anything. As you can, or what is you know, th- write a five-page scene as the incorporating as much theatricality as you can. Make it interesting, you know, in terms of and theatricality is a very vague term for just sort of anything you know visual something visually that engages the audience visually you know you know at the end of the day the thing that's going to grab your audience in terms of theatricality and everything is the dramatic conflict what and and we 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 break down well what is what is a conflict in drama uh what are the basic elements um you know, it's two mutually exclusive wants. At its very basic, at its very basic level, it's you know, two thirsty people and one glass of water, and and, right. and maybe just half a glass of water or just a drop of water. And it's who's going to get that glass of water and the tactics they employ to try and secure that what they want. That is what constitutes the action.
0: experienced Shakespeare growing up in prep school in England and so and they were casting you know everybody in plays and stuff so um is that where you were first exposed to Shakespeare and will you tell us about your relationship to to the man's work at, from a playwright's point of view
1: well I think I, I mean I remember being taught uh, Shakespeare in uh, my school in England um I don't think I don't think we did a Shakespeare play while I was there I think we did Molly yeah? And then we did a whole bunch of modern plays. Um uh this was always uh um this was also the the 70s, and I think students were being a bit rebellious and saying, we want to do modern work and stuff like that. And so I, I Shakespeare was mostly, I was doing it mostly in uh in the classroom. Um, when did I... I don't recall. I must have seen a Shakespeare play. I must have seen a Shakespeare in play. Egypt? In, I, in Egypt? yes. In Egypt, we were doing Shakespeare. Um, uh, we did do Shakespeare plays in Egypt. Uh, so I was exposed to him there. Um, and uh, Carnegie Mellon, I remember acting in uh, Shakespeare. I, do, I was doing the... Uh, I was doing Comedy of Errors. I remember my... You know, continue, even though I was a playwright, I, I, I still auditioned for plays and I, I auditioned for Comedy of Errors and got cast in the uh, part of the father, the guy who comes on gives the exposition then buggers off, you know, it's such a thankless part. <laughs> right. But I remember the, I, I remember the, uh, my first performance um, of that play, Comedy of Errors, um... I was in the wings and it's the father and, and the juke and you know I think the, I believe the father comes on in chains or whatever and and has to explain himself because he's going to be ex- I, I think he's going to be executed if I, if I recall I, I forget but uh, so me and the, the Duke, the actor who was playing the Duke, were in the wings and the, the lights were going down and the Duke, the actor playing the Duke, just lets out this huge huge fart in the wings and I just, I just, <laughs> I just burst out laughing. I just, I'm, I'm hysterics. And, and then, and then, and then, and, the, and I go, I'm going, oh, I can't go on, I can't go on now. I'm, la- I'm laughing, I, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be playing a tragic character. I'm the dad, and, and the twins, and my, and the storm, and, 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 on, on, you're on. And so I go on, and I'm inside, I am just trying my hardest, not to burst out laughing and i'm thinking, and, I, and i keep telling myself i keep telling myself okay you this is you're in graduate school you don't want to be kicked out if you if you break character and lose it they will find a way to kick you out because you know that's all about you know conservatories it's all about thinning the herd so i was just desperately mm-hmm. trying on mm-hmm. and at one point tears were coming down my face because i was just in in hysterically and afterwards after i managed to get through i couldn't look at the duke's face because i knew if i looked at the actor i would just lose it so it was away from him and and afterwards people came to me and going "When oh my god joseph that was so moving that was just <laughs> i thought this was such a dry part Uh, And you just imbued that exposition with so much feeling. And I was just going, yeah, yeah, well, I try. I I just, you know, I gave it my all. And and I didn't want to say, yeah, (laughs) my motivation was a fart. And that was what (laughs) gave this great performance, which is why I always tell actors it doesn't matter what's going through your mind. And of course, totally. of course, and, and of course, <laughs> and, and, and acting, as, uh, somebody at one point said, Well, of course, that you it came because you were fighting against something. As an actor, you know, when you're up against something, that creates interest and engagement. And so, my struggle at that moment made it, you know, never mind what the struggle was about, it did provide a certain energy and engagement with what I was saying even though the motivation was totally, had nothing to do with the character. So um, that Would was just... Would you agree with that? <laughs> yeah, you know, it was just, it was an interesting, it, it, it was, as I moved forward as an actor, that was very interesting for me because I just, I realized that, stop worrying what the audience, because, you know, you might have a, a good night and the audience will go, yeah, it's and you might have a terrible night and the audience might love your performance. So you just don't know, right. you don't know. And so, um, mm-hmm. but anyway, back to Shakespeare. So that was my, so I did, in, in Cairo, I was exposed to Shakespeare. In Man, I was exposed to Shakespeare. And, you know, and it was just, you know, you know Shakespeare is everywhere. So I would just go to see this production and that production. And, you know, um, and after a while, you're seeing the same play produced several times over. Um, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, at a certain point and certainly at this point in my life I just said enough enough with Shakespeare um, that I, 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 I have a limited time on this planet um, I need sure. to expose myself I've exposed myself to uh, Shakespeare enough and I just need to um, I don't care if it's uh, a, a really unique take on a play, on one of his plays. I've seen countless takes, you know, uh, on all his plays, most of his plays. And I just don't need to, and plus the film versions. I just don't need to see another Shakespeare play. Um, because I really have a sense of my own sort of mortality and that I, 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 I need to spend the time I would see a Shakespeare play seeing something else. And I think also, I mean, there's a reason Shakespeare's done uh, over and over is because he's a he's a really good dramatist. It's not his language uh, that it's not just his language that makes us want to produce him again and again. Is that he's a really exciting playwright.
0: When did you start finding your own voice? And I mean, in counter to, you know, what you were being taught at Carnegie Mellon from that one professor who was like, well, we were not interested in what you have to say. We're interested in, in you learning the basic elements of playwriting, the craft of, of, of playwriting. When did you start? You know taking that and then infusing it with your own voice and going out on your own and being like this is now what i have to say and actually also i'm look, this is a larger question but you know what is it that you endeavor to say with your plays
1: well you know that's interesting the whole notion of voice and and when it kicks in for a writer uh, i used to also teach playwriting uh, uh later uh, at duke university i taught playwriting and what i found interesting was uh writers who would um, start out in one semester, you know, they would I, I would teach them kind of what I was taught and they would write their p- plays and and then maybe second semester or third semester I would suddenly notice a whole new flowering in terms of their output and I would go, oh, look their voice just kicked in you know, it, it, it's almost like, oh, they just reached puberty, it's something would Kick in, and and it happens for, um, it happens for people at different times, and you never know. And so I never write, mm-hmm. I never wrote any of my students off, even the ones who s- seemed a bit clunky, but who were still passionate. Because I, I said, I don't yet know when your voice will kick in. My voice kicked in. It took a very long time. I mean, there are several reasons why that was. When I came to America, I still heard. When characters spoke, I still heard British voices, and of course that was kind of weird to write British characters in an American setting. Also, they weren't as I as I lived in Egypt, and I'd you know now was in America. They weren't. It was becoming a bit uh, muddied that uh, those voices. So there was this weird transition where I was transitioning from my. British background into this new American setting. It took a long time for me to hear American voices and for them to naturally emerge as characters in my plays. So I I did want to write uh, um, plays for my audience here. I I, I feel very strongly that I need to communicate with with wherever I am, with the audience that I have. so that took, I remember it took me like seven years before I could match it, before I wrote my first quote unquote American play. Um, that was one thing. The other thing is I was a bit lost in terms of where do I belong? Now, for me as a writer, I need to feel like I belong somewhere in order to participate in the conversation of that place. Um, you know, I. I I mean, my big success when I was in my adolescence, in my adolescence, in my uh, years, right after Carnegie Mellon, was a play about, uh, a play called Hostages, which was about people, two people stuck in a kind of no man's land, in no- which is where, kind of where I was. And um, so it took a long time for me to um, finally connect to the U.S. and where I was. And actually that happened when I became a citizen. And it was a very interesting experience for me. And I actually wrote about it in in a play called The Talented Ones, where I remember coming out of that naturalization ceremony. This was in 96. Uh, And I remember thinking, oh, I'm now, I am now a U.S. citizen and I, I am now, part of the story of this country the good and bad of it of of immigrants who come from somewhere else who come to this country and and then make a home for themselves here the thing about being brought up in england is they never let you forget that you weren't english you know it, it wouldn't, <laughs> they wouldn't it wouldn't matter if i'd stayed there up until now uh it's, they were just. I don't. I, and I think like since Brexit, Brexit, it's gone back. I think for a while it got better. Then it got when they went back to their default setting of not being very welcoming. But they they never let you forget that, and that was a problem for me. And I think coming to mm. America on paper, at least, not necessarily in daily interactions or, you know, some of the negativity in um, around you, but on paper, officially, supposedly, that this is, you know, immigrants are welcomed and, you know, integrated and become American. And supposedly, a foreign-born American has the same rights as a native-born American, and they're not, you know... and. Psychologically, it was important for me to know that if some American came to me and told me to you know bugger off, I could say no, you bugger off you know um um that this sense of belonging was i didn't realize how much I needed it, and that's the other thing i didn't realize mm. I'd always considered myself a uh, a um a citizen of the world, you know, kind of like I'm one of those, you know, citizens of the world. I don't belong anywhere. But actually, when I became a citizen, I suddenly real- i suddenly realized it was answering a need I didn't even realize. Uh, uh, I didn't re- even realize I, I needed that.
0: Your, your tutelage, you took your research even further after you became a citizen of the United States and yeah. continued to read up on um, the untold stories yes. of yeah. U.S. Yes, of yes. Americans.
1: Yes, in fact, before I became a citizen that was uh, of, of great interest to me. And I think because I just related to being up against it. And a lot of these stories were mm. about uh, individuals and peoples who are up against it. You know, who had to surmount certain obstacles, who didn't feel welcome, or who had, you know, challenges to say the least, to, to you know, negotiate their presence in this country. I mean, this country is—it's a pretty bloody, and um, you know, it's—it's it's, the the, you know, the history of the states is is um, there's a lot there's a lot of. Uh, um, you know, blood and guts. I mean, it's just—it's it's, it's a lot of it's not very unpleasant, but it has certain ideals. It purports to hold to certain ideals and to love, live up to. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, um, you know, the work of activists over the decades has been to say, look, you have these statements. You have to live up to these statements. You know, and I think that's been the journey of this country, living up to its ideals, and the various people who have struggled and and pushed to to say you are failing the ideals of this country. Uh, you're are nowhere close to it, and um, uh, and so for me, reading up about that and feeling I was a part of the, this journey, suddenly all my very personal. Uh, issues, I felt plugged into a bigger struggle. And so all my plays now, I felt like they were part of a wider discussion.
0: For those who don't know, um, will you tell us in detail, what's the experience like for a playwright? Having their work realized from conception to production.
1: Mm, mm. Um. Well, it's. I, I will say this. Um, for aspiring playwrights, you have to, you have to practice, 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 like with any discipline. So, if you write something and you're sending it around, I'll get your question, I promise. But if you if you write something and send it around. And you're not getting um, uh, any responses. You, you have to find a way to. Uh, you have to find a way to practice your craft, and the only way you're going to do it, it's not enough just to write something. You have to write it, and you have to stage it, and you have to learn from that. So, and one of the things that I, during the 90s I was writing these big plays. Once I stopped, realizing, you know. I, that I'm not an actor. and I want to focus on plays. Happened around uh, like late '90s. Um, I've, I I I I I realized I had to get with a group that would do what I what I wrote. And so I would just I was with this very small group. We we were, every week we we we'd come, we'd meet, we'd write something. Actors would take the, the script, and there'd be a cold reading of that script and we did this every week and that was invaluable because you really can't learn by just yes you can write be as productive as you as you can writing at home but then you have to find a way to get it up on its feet because then you you'll begin to you'll see well okay I need to I just need to Cut! I need to be more clear. I need. You'll learn all the things you need to know, learn by seeing it up on its feet.
0: And now, to excite your curiosity, and in the spirit of infusing the world with more joy, I present to you some magic questions. If you could master one skill that you don't already have, what would it be? You know,
1: I I used to be a painter. Um, I did a lot of painting. Um, I used to uh, it used to be a nice counterbalance to focusing on words, words, words. I like the uh, I liked getting a canvas and painting, and I used to do that a lot during the 90s. I painted a lot. I didn't have a television, so I'd switch on the radio, and late at night I would paint, 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 and I and I had lots of paintings. And I moved to Seattle, and I continued painting. And then one day I got a television. And I stopped painting, and um, mm. so because I thought, well, I don't need the visual, wow. I don't need the visual element anymore. I've got my TV, and I can watch that. But I think I would. I've often said if I didn't if I didn't write, I'd paint. Um, but you know, if I if I had to master another, uh, uh, I, I, I'd love to be a musician. You know, that's mm. just, I admire musicians and all all types of uh, music, uh, from classical. To to jazz to you know even uh, uh, pop songs um, I think uh, music is and I think because what we talked about music being such an integral part of um, any mm-hmm. any storytelling including playwriting and theatre mm-hmm. so, so I suppose skill set music or, or or painting that would be my two things okay
0: okay. Um. All right. Here's a uh, here's a biggie. This is your specific magic question. <clears throat> so, a jinn, for those who don't know, yes. uh, is is a creature that is neither good nor bad. Yes. It is um typically associated with evil, but it actually is Arabic of origin and pre is and Islamic, yes. uh, part of Islamic mythology, right. and would later be um anglicized into what we know as in the western culture as a genie that's right that's right um yeah. and but its original name is jinn right um and so uh, actually it has a few different names especially in arabic right. so uh jinn um so a jinn comes to this creature a jinn comes to visit you um and aid you in your work And it seeks purely to help you by providing you with one of three truths from the past delivered to you in whichever way you wish. And these truths are, you can only pick one. One, a detailed account of the colonization of the United States from the souls of everyone who existed at that time. Interesting. Or two... A comprehensive, uh, excuse me, a comprehensive account of your entire family lineage and their experiences up until the moment of your birth. Or three, an exhaustive account of your own life from the perspective of every single person you've come into contact with, no matter how brief or seemingly inconsequential. Which truth do you choose?
1: Oh, it's a very interesting question. Um, well, the, the first one, I, I, I you know, I, 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 there are history books, and so um, um, I, I, obviously it would be a very detailed and um, a different take, and I'm, that's very tempting the first. Uh. Um, the last one, that's also fascinating. Um, you know, um, what do people, how do people, how do people see me? Because, you know, we, we, um, we're occasionally surprised by how people perceive us, but I'm not that fascinated by myself, so I would probably not choose that, the last one. I'd have to go with the middle one, which is the family lineage, uh, I'm totally fascinated. I've, I periodically go, gosh, I, I wish I could go, but we could go back. I could go back and back and back and back and back to, um, to uh, you know, both sides of my family and, and discover the journeys of, um, you know, go back as far as I can. I mean, how fascinating would that be? to uh hmm. to uh, so if a jinn came along and said of those three what would you pick i would pick the middle one about uh getting as much information about my family as i possibly could and just you know personal that was the thing right that the jinn would give you it would be more than just factual it would be um sort of um a
0: detailed yeah it it would be a comprehensive account um, from the souls of you know of everyone within your family lineage and delivered to you in whichever way you wish. So if you wanted to talk to them, you could if you wanted to oh, just yeah. hear, I don't know an audio book tape yeah, yeah. Oh, of, of of a single person yeah, yeah or no. you could read a book
1: yeah yeah no. I, I would I would totally do that. what would you what would your choice be?
0: Oh, my choice actually doesn't factor in here because <laughs> we'll, we'll just cut that out. Okay. Um, I never answer these questions because okay. they're not meant all for right. me. Okay. But I appreciate your asking. Okay. So the last one, last question, final question. Uh, when you die, because we all will, um, if people forget everything about you, what's the one thing you want them to remember?
1: Well, you know, I mean, one, one writes... Um, in the hope, I mean, I don't write in, uh, for that reason, but you know, I, I, I do hope, I do hope that uh, some of my stuff might be of interest uh, after I pass. You know, there is a professor at um, in University of Oregon, Eugene, Michael uh, Melek Niger, who is archiving my papers. He said. He's a, he's a an historian whose focus is on... He's a professor, drama professor, whose focus has been on Arab-American drama through the decades. And he said um, it, was, it has been so difficult for him to do, to do research because a lot of these uh, original papers have disappeared and have been lost. And what I want to do is I want to archive your work so some professor who's going, well, what was that movement of Arab-American drama, Middle Eastern American drama, at the beginning of the uh, 21st century? You know, uh, who are some of the players involved? And he says, I, I just want to create a record for future scholars to have access to some papers. And he's doing a very diligent mm. job of... Um, uh, Bringing to the uh, forefront some of these writers, so you know, um, you know, if, if I, you know, my my, if I was, we are all going to disappear. I I I would like that. I would like there to be some sort of record to say that, you know, so some Egyptian American or Arab American theater person a hundred years from now go well is there anybody is there are there any monologues <laughs> from any place that i can look and somebody can say yes there was you know we have in our archives or you know there are some of these um, maybe you want to look at if you're looking for ancient texts you know uh really old texts here are some mm. old texts that you can uh, uh choose from and you know uh, uh yeah i mean that's i guess that's that's uh, that's a hope. It's not a. It's not the reason why I write. I mean, I I, I was telling the same professor. I was saying, look, I, I he was saying, well, you 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 do write a lot, and he said, yeah, and I said, yes, I'm trying to add to the canon. I'm trying to add to mm-hmm. our canon, which did not exist. You know, it's mm-hmm. there are. It's taken a long time. You know, you look at them in, in talking about. You know how I studied up on the different different groups and, you know, when you look at the, you know, the African American movement and drama, I mean there was, I mean it was percolating periodically uh, throughout uh, since, since the African Americans have been here but, you know, it really started taking hold in the I'd say 50s and then really kicked in in the 60s yep. and, and then moved forward mm-hmm. uh, with Latinx and Asian Americans. It really started happening in the late 60s, but really kicked in in the, seven, in the 70s. That's when a lot of the writers from the Asian American, uh, a lot of the dramatists from the Asian American and Latinx communities started percolating up uh, with the Native Americans. It started really happening in the 90s in terms of the mainstream culture. And with the Middle Eastern uh, uh, contingent, it really started happening in the late 90s. There were lots of organizations, theater troops in New York, in San Francisco, uh, in uh, Dearborn, uh, uh, Michigan. Um, and, uh, and then after 9-11, it really kicked up because that's kind of how things happen in this country. The, a group becomes a problem group. And suddenly there's a, a negative mm-hmm. spotlight on that group, and so people from that group begin to respond. They have to respond. They're forced to. You know, there's this negative spotlight, and they have to speak up. And this happens time mm-hmm. after time, with group after group. And you know, usually you have comics who, you know, who emerge, and uh, so you have sort of like a comics from that group and then writers from that group and dramatists and then filmmakers and you know that's sort of how it happens in this country and that started really happening for the Middle Eastern American community in um, late 90s and then the 2000s and so there are writers now who are writing and adding to that canon and so I always I would say you know part of what motivates me is, you know, I'm, I'm going to write because I, I, I just, I have to write. I try and write every day. But, you know, I'm also, some little part of me is also aware of wanting to contribute to that canon. So there is, there are plays for those Arab American or Middle East American actors who, who, who now, you know, who are present now and who come much later and who want to know, well, what plays are out there for me? You know, I mean, I didn't see myself represented on stage until my 40s. You know, mm. there was no representation whatsoever uh, uh, until in, in my 40s. And so, luckily, that's going to be changing for the Middle Eastern actors coming up now. I think they, they'll have some place to choose from. Uh, there are other dramatists, you know, many other dramatists, apart from myself, who are uh, uh, providing material for them. So that's what I hope um, continues.
0: Well, we thank you for your contribution. <laughs> well, thank you.
1: Thank you, Lamar. And we thank you for your contribution. Thank you.
0: For listening to Under This Light, a revelation of Shakespeare and self. The series is a project of Seattle Shakespeare Company. If you enjoyed this discussion and would like to learn more about Seattle Shakespeare Company's productions and programs, please visit seattleshakespeare.org. We'd love to hear from you. Seattle Shakespeare is located on lands taken from the Duwamish, Stillaguamish, Muckleshoot, Suquamish, and All Coast Salish people and we pay respect to them as this region's original storytellers. The music you hear in this episode is provided and composed by Stefan Dorsey. Artwork for our series was created by Marla Bonner. I'm host and producer Lamar Legend, and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. So, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Give us your hands if we be friends, and Lamar shall restore amends.